0: To me, that's the key to sustainable fat loss. And of course, there's always going to be crises and, and craziness and life just life at you. And so it, it's really a matter of understanding how to roll with life, whatever's being thrown at you at the time, in a way that doesn't completely take your needs out of the equation. Here
1: on my hustle, keeping it going. This what you need. Yes, indeed. This is coaching your coaching. Hosted by Yash, the podcast interviewing the elite high school, collegiate, and professional athletes, trainers, and doctors. doctors. Really, it's the dopest, the dopest info that you need. This is coaching your coaching. Let's go.
2: Melody, we appreciate you hopping on with us. I have to say, going through your bio, the biggest thing that stands out, and I'm sure anybody would say this is 28 years in the industry. That's no joke. Yeah. You've been yeah. here for a minute. Could you tell me, please, what got you started into getting into this industry, and how did that journey come across?
0: So random, (laughs) because I was not (laughs) athletic growing up, like, at all. I was bullied in school, and I was, like, the last one picked for every sport. And I did dance, because you're supposed to be cultured. And I was pretty good at dance, but I wasn't, like, a competitive dancer or anything. When I went to college, I kept up with dance, and I actually started training for competition and things like ballroom. And that was fun. But then when I got out, I'm a musician. I wanted to be a musician. It's not a sensible career. And my major was education, elementary education. And I did know I did not want to be a teacher. I had a hell of a lot of respect for teachers. It's like the hardest, most underpaid, underappreciated job out there. But I don't have, I can't do it. So I needed to do something. So I became a, uh, I was, I worked in advertising. I was an account executive for a while, and I didn't like that. Everyone was drunk at lunch but me. It just kind of wasn't my scene. And I was making $20,000 a year in New York City, which will buy you a sandwich. And so my brother at the time, who is Brad Schoenfeld, which a lot of people know who he is, my brother had a small gym for a personal training studio for women. And he said, well, you can work here on the weekends, make some extra money. And I was like, well, I don't know how to train people. And so he just wrote the program's. He took me through the programs and then I would just like vomit that onto the clients. Not literally, you know what I mean? I would just kind of take that program and and say, okay, this is what he told me to tell you. And I don't like talking the talk without walking the walk. So I would then take the programs and go to the gym and I started doing these programs or else I would just follow him around like a little puppy dog and do whatever he was doing. And I started really kind of enjoying it. And what I realized was that was the only, with all the careers I've had, and I've had many That was the only career that I had where I was tangibly making a difference in somebody's life. Besides music, that's the only other career that I've ever had where I tangibly made a difference to somebody. And so I want to keep doing that. That's the only thing I ever wanted to do. That's why I studied education. I was like, I'm going to change lives. So this was a way that I was actually doing that just one person at a time. And it was really cool. So whatever else I was doing, I was doing that on the side. And then September 11th happened. And when something like that happens, it kind of makes you reevaluate your life. The other thing that makes you reevaluate your life is the fact that the project team you were working on shut down completely and the company almost went out of business. So I had to leave where I was at. I was in Chicago at the time and the guy I was with at the time lived in LA. So I was like, well, what do I want to do and who do I want to do it with? And so I decided I wanted to go to LA and be with him. I was wrong about that one, but I was correct about the career path. So I, I kept on training and I just went in full-time when I came out here. And that's been all, that's that's where I went from there.
2: That's awesome. I recognized the last name. I just thought it was a crazy coincidence. We've nope. somehow separately been contacting you and Brad. So we have been linked up with Brad. And you somehow, I think in the same cycle as well. So we actually interviewed grads, master student, Max, and we're hoping to set up times with Pratt next, you know, hopefully in New York, because Kevin's out in uh, Jersey right now. He doesn't know this, but we're hoping to link up with him in New York. Uh-huh. That was craziest. That's well, I think I had pretty similar ideas growing up, because for me, I wanted to get into teaching because I didn't like my teachers growing up. Yep. And then when I found coaching, I was like, you know what, coaching and teaching, pretty similar gig. So get to help mm-hmm. people, so we get to teach people similar stuff. Mm-hmm. So I definitely see a lot of parallels there, and that's really great.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. Except, you know, it's, it's different because when you're a teacher, you have to be all, you have to wear all these hats. You have to be a police officer and you have to be a a mom and a dad. And, you know, you have to be all of these things that these Mm -hmm. kids need. Whereas if you're coaching one person at a time, it's just a lot more manageable. I feel like than 40 people who just, if I can help one person in this group of 40, it's supposed to be a good day. And all you think in your head is there are 39 people who I can't do anything for. And then you go home and you cry for the rest of the night. Whereas when you're coaching someone, they're there because they want to be there, or at least they know they should be there. And then it's just a matter of working with that one person based on what, what they've got going on.
1: It's so cool that you mentioned that, Melody, because I can relate a lot. I'd experienced my sophomore year of high school where I had an injury and I ended up in a physical therapist's office. Mm-hmm. And I admired so much the lifestyle of kind of being in a gym and helping people. And in that moment, I was, I knew it. I'm like, all right, I'm going to be a physical therapist. And while going to school, studying for that, I became a personal trainer. And I realized if I'm a personal trainer, I can help people who want to see me. Meanwhile, Mm -hmm. as a physical therapist, I would really only be seeing people who needed to. And what an amazing kind of switch that was. I don't really have a question in, in, in that regard for you, but selfishly, I don't know how much time we have together, but the thing that I selfishly want to know the most from you, I happen to be a meat eater and mm-hmm. I, I, I saw your book, Pleasure Not Meeting You, mm-hmm. and I want to learn how to make a vegan lifestyle or non meating eating lifestyle, however you want to put it, effective for, for health and fitness goals because I do work with clients who don't want to eat meat and I don't have experience to help them. I I don't even know where to begin, but I would love to know what led you to that lifestyle. What do you find value in it and how do you do it in a way that's sustainable?
0: I mean, that book kind of gives you the basics, but I've kind of always been going down this road when I was a little kid, I was, you know, we had a bird bath in the backyard and I would go out there and save all the bugs out of it. That's just kind of always been the, the direction I've been going in. And so for me and my morality, it's just kind of, it's kind of like religion to me. It's like, this is what I believe in. I'm not going to try to make you believe what I believe in because that's not my place, but this is what I believe in. And this is my perceived path of least harm. And so for me, if it were anything other than a moral decision, I don't know that I could have done it because when I went vegan, it was over 23 years ago and nobody was vegan when I went vegan. I was vegan before vegan was cool. So nobody was vegan at that time. And it was like you had the eraser, like the soy eraser cheese, that was just the worst stuff in the whole world. And you had TVP, which is textured vegetable protein, which is these dehydrated soy nuggets. And it's just not not delicious. And so, you know, you you didn't have a lot of options. Now, veganism is trendy. And there's like some of the vegan stuff out there is better than what I remember the meat stuff tasting like. I didn't stop eating meat because I didn't like meat. I stopped eating meat because I didn't want anything to die because I liked meat. And so for me, this was this was a logical thing and it worked really, really well for me. But also I am a strength athlete. And so I need to be able to support my nutrition with my diet. I need to support my performance with my diet. So the thing that I do is I prioritize protein at every meal. I decide what protein or combination of proteins I want in that meal. I decide how much I need to get around the amount that I want in that meal. Usually I aim for somewhere. I'm I'm not like weighing and measuring my food or anything, but I aim for around 40 grams minimum per meal. And uh, I start with that. I throw in a whole bunch of veggies and then I create whatever I'm going to create from there. And that works really, really well for me. But it's, it's a lot simpler than I feel like we make it. There are some supplements that I do think vegans need to take. It's either you need to eat fortified foods with B12 or you need to take B12. We don't get any in our diet. Vegans do very well with creatine. Creatine is very helpful for performance purposes and recovery purposes. Vegans do really well with it because creatine is in muscle and we don't eat any muscles. So basically we're going from zero with creatine. So unless you're a non-responder taking creatine, vegans tend to do better with it. And then I also do recommend taking a vegan DHA EPA, which is essentially fish oil. Fish get that from eating algae. They don't produce it naturally. They get it through eating algae. So in this way, you're cutting out the middleman. It's, your body doesn't care if it comes from fish or not. The studies on DHA EPA show that the algae is, is pretty equivalent to fish oil. And so to me, even my clients who aren't vegan, I recommend them getting it that way. Number one, you can make it in the lab so it doesn't have the contaminants in it that a lot of fish May get from being in the ocean, mercury and such. And also, it seems to be a little bit more shelf stable to my understanding. I don't know a ton about the pharmaceutical aspect of that, but it seems to be more shelf stable. And the most important thing is you don't get fish burps from it. And I like that. So, yeah, the DHA EPA is an important one. And then you just kind of have to analyze what you are and are not getting in your diet and adjust accordingly. I would argue that people who aren't vegan probably need to either analyze their diet and see what they're not getting, (laughs) there's a good chance you need to supplement.
1: I appreciate that well-rounded response so much. I'm already taking notes, B12, creatine, DHA, EPA. And I too am not somebody who takes out a food scale every time I eat. It's wild how similar of a philosophy I have is like prioritizing protein at each meal and going from there.
0: Yeah. If you look at the research on protein, your body doesn't care where it comes from. It cares that you're getting it. And so it's a matter of understanding that in a vegan diet, you need a wide variety of protein sources just because the amount of amino acids that you're getting is not going to be equivalent to meat. And so there are a couple of complete proteins in the vegan diet, but even then the amino acid content is lower than what you would be getting in meat. And so getting a wide variety of protein sources, and you may need even a little bit more protein than than a meat eater might protein sources. But yeah, as long as it's equivalent, everybody doesn't care where it's coming from.
1: That's incredible. And Mm -hmm. I'm sure it's within the book and I'll have to get myself a copy. But one of the obstacles I run into with myself and a lot of my clients is a term that I call macro baggage. It's like Mm -hmm. you want to get your protein, but while you're chasing that protein intake, if you're a weight loss client, you're also consuming fats, carbs, and calories along with that protein. I'm curious if you had like a top three to five protein sources that were dense in protein, but didn't come with a lot of baggage that work on a vegan diet, what would that kind of short list of go-to protein sources be?
0: There is a really cool product that I discovered very recently. And I want to say the name of, I might be getting the name of the company wrong, I think the company is called Blue Mountain. It's something mountain, and I think it starts with a B. But they make a fava bean tofu that is very high in protein and very low in calories. I really, really like that product. And you just cook it the same way you would cook tofu. A lot of people kind of like hold their nose at the idea of tofu. Tofu takes on the flavor of whatever you're cooking it in. And so it's just a matter of learning how to cook it right. I also make my own seitan. I do not like labor intensive things. It is not hard to make. And the reason I make my own is because a lot of times when you buy it in the store, it's just wheat gluten. And while wheat gluten does have high protein in it, the quality is not that high. But when you combine it with a little bean flour, it becomes a very high quality protein. Beans and wheat are a complete protein together. And so I usually use lupini bean protein. The The protein quality in lupini beans is a little bit higher than it is in other beans. And also it's lower in carbs, which is cool. I don't really care. I will eat all the carbs in the world, but it's just kind of a cool fun fact. Lupini beans are lower in carbohydrates than most beans. And so- I use lupini bean flour with the wheat gluten. I make my own seitan. Seitan is another thing that will take on the flavor of whatever you cook it in. So I just make that, and then you it takes on the flavor of whatever you're cooking it in. And then it's also a texture thing. There's three ways to cook it. You can boil it, which I never do because it gets soggy. Or you can steam it, which is kind of my choice. I put it in the Instant Pot and I steam it in the Instant Pot and I really like it done that way. Or you can bake it too. And sometimes they'll steam it first and then bake it. And it's nice and firm that way and takes on the flavor of whatever you're cooking it in. So that's another one that I use a lot. And I really, you know, a lot of people don't like the fake meat products. I think they're great. They're very convenient. There's nothing that's, they're not going to harm you, right? People are like, oh, it's processed. If you chew your food, you're processing your food. Right. It's process just means you're, you're changing it from what it is in nature. And unless you swallow all of your food whole off the vine, you are changing it from what it is in nature. And so the fake meats, basically, they are a mixture of ingredients that they've put together and made into a product. And it's just a matter of do you like those ingredients? Do they agree with you? Great. It is a convenient source of protein. I have an entire stack of tofurki for lunch every day. <laughs> Because it's convenient, it's easy, and it is easy protein. And, you know, it's a choice. You don't have to eat that stuff. But to me, it's like if it's convenient and it tastes good, I'm good with it. I'm not – my health is not worse off for it, and I feel good with it, you know. So people have differing opinions on that. But to me, it's like it's, it's just food, kids. Don't be so dramatic.
2: <laughs> I like how simple you made that because I feel like when we look on social media and we look at the different diets, it's like we look at them as – Two different extremes like you're either eating all meat or you're super 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 vegan or you know you're super super all meat and it's like you could find ways to be healthy on both sides and you know it's there's a lot more commonalities between there and Mm -hmm. my question is over 28 years how do you feel like the health and fitness industry evolved
0: i mean now it's evolving really fast with the ai stuff i kind of have very mixed feelings about ai and a lot of people are asking, well, do you think this is going to ruin careers? And I feel like in some ways it it has the potential to do that. But I also, I'm going to take the optimistic route here because if you don't take the optimistic route, you're going to take the one that doesn't feel as good. And to me, I feel like people, when I, for instance, if I call a company and it's a machine, I'm just like zero, 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 give me a person. I want to talk to a person. You know, And I feel like no matter how good AI gets, people are going to miss that human connection that you are never going to get from a machine. A machine, no matter how good you program a machine, it will never be empathetic. Not really. It'll be what has been programmed as empathy, but it will never be empathetic. It will never understand you completely. And so to me, I feel like that human connection is going to be something that people are going to really start to want as a result of interacting with machines all the time. So that's my, that's where I kind of feel like it's evolving into. But in the time that I've been here, you just see trends, you know, it's like, oh, here's the cool new gadget. Everybody does kettlebells now. Okay, cool. Everybody does BOSU now. Cool. We're going to, everybody's going to stand on one leg and juggle fire now. Cool. So there's always kind of the new thing, but it always comes back to the basics. I think it always comes back to, you know, push, pull, deadlift, squat. You know, it always comes back to that. So Mm
2: -hmm. definitely. And I love how you brought that up because I'm curious, as a gym owner, for your clients who come in thinking that this is the wave, how do you accommodate that to say that we are keeping up with what you think is interesting, but at the same time that you know that the fundamentals are going to stick through? How do you balance those two things?
0: That's kind of the cool thing about working with people on a one-on-one or in a small group basis is that you get to know them and what they need. And I'm a big fan of meeting people where they're at. I'm not gonna try to push what I want for them onto them. If where they're at is I need to feel like I'm gonna die at the end of every session, I will talk them through why that's not necessary, why they don't need to do that. I will take them through one of my sessions and I will show them that look, you are gonna work, right? And you are gonna get stronger and you're gonna move better and you don't need to feel like you're gonna throw up every time you train to make that effective. And usually they're like, oh, this is actually working for me. And none of those other things were, and I never stuck with it because it was miserable. And then there's always going to be people who are like, no, I want to throw up and they won't train with me. And that's cool.
1: That's awesome, Melody. Um, I spent probably a decade working with people in person and I always found it was a combination of like, all right, what do they want today? That's going to give them what they're looking for so that they are in love with it. They enjoy it. They feel the value. They keep coming back, but How do I sneak in what it is that they actually need? And a big thing that I noticed is the challenging part of working with people in a brick and mortar facility is when they walk in the door, they tend to have already diagnosed their own problem Mm -hmm. and prescribed their own solution. And they Mm -hmm. walk in knowing, oh, my problem is that I don't have a trainer and my solution is that I'm going to see you three times a week and voila, all my problems are going to be gone. But the reality is the problems don't exist in the gym. The problems exist at home. And I'm I'm Mm -hmm. curious how... How do you communicate that to your clients, and how do you transcend the work that you do in the facility and help them actually change their behaviors at home, which is where the health problems occur?
0: I mean, ultimately, you can't. You can't control what somebody does unless you're watching them 24-7, and you can give them the facts. I give people tons of facts. I have an ebook I send to all my clients about fat loss. I wrote a book on the science of fat loss called Diet Lies and Weight Loss Truths, and I wrote that book off of this ebook that I used to send to my clients. I send that to everybody because it's the basics of how, my master's is in health psychology. And for me, it's like the basics of the psychology around what you're eating. And so I send that to everybody and they either read it or they don't. Ultimately, I can't control what they do. And then they come in and they tell me, I, I have one client who comes to me, every time she comes in, she's like, oh, I gotta lose weight. And I'm like, okay, well, you gotta do this and this. And she's like, I know that. And I'm like, okay, well, are you going to do it? She's like, nope. And I'm like, okay, well, you're not going to lose weight. And then recently she's been coming in and saying, Well, people keep telling me I look thinner. I'm like, that's great. Did you change something in your diet? And then she'll continue to talk about people keep telling me I look like I lose weight. And she avoids the question. And I'm like, did you change something in your diet? Nope. Okay. Well, maybe you're wearing your skinny clothes. That's great. But I don't think you lost weight if you didn't change anything in your routine or your diet. But it's awesome that people are noticing that. <laughs>
1: that ties into why I'm not too concerned about AI. I think people know the inputs that you need to input to change your health. Yeah, They know them. If it were as simple as what is the best thing to do, we would all do it. But an idea that has become blatantly obvious to me is you can never own your health. You can never accrue enough of it that you just have it now and you can put your feet up and relax, but you actually need to continue to put the inputs in for the rest of your life. There's never, There's never a time where you can retire from exercise and nutrition. So finding the inputs that you actually enjoy doing for the long term is so much more valuable than an artificial intelligence telling you what the ultimate input is. And I know you mentioned you work with just like an array of clients. Yeah. How do you go about the process of finding what's best for each unique individual and kind of getting them bought into it as they evolve as humans?
0: I mean, every session is an assessment. The first thing I ask people when they walk in the door is, how are you feeling today? every single time because your body is different every day, right? And so when people come in, oh yeah, my back, oh, I didn't sleep well, or oh, my wrist hurts, or I don't feel like being here today, or oh, I'm ready to go. So whatever it is, you take that energy and you always have a plan B, C and D, depending on how they come in. And then of course you always keep their goals in mind. This is what we can do within your capacity today. That is going to continue to take a step towards your goals.
2: Definitely. Yeah. The way I first met Kevin was Kevin was my trainer for a while. And the first thing we did when we walk in is like, what's hurting? And we'd fix it. In fact, I actually hit him up over the weekend and I was like, Kevin, something's hurting. I need help. And he, uh, he came in clutch and he still, um, helped me out there. Yeah. So something that I'm really curious about is you spent time in corporate before you opened your gym a lot of times. And especially, you know, we spent a lot of time in the CrossFit space. A lot of CrossFit gym owners get into it because they like fitness but they don't necessarily know the business side of it. The CEO now, Don, he's always saying that the biggest next steps to get the quality of CrossFit gyms higher is to teach CrossFit gym owners business because he knows they got the fitness. He knows they got it. It's just, could they keep the lights on enough where they could focus on the fitness and not have to worry about you know running so many things where they can't do that? Mm-hmm. I'm curious. You've had your facility for a while now. I have. What do you think is some of the keys to getting a business to be sustainable business-wise to get a gym owner thinking about the fitness?
0: Well, first of all, I'm the worst person to ask about this because I'm a terrible (laughs) business person. Um, (laughs) But I will tell you this. I have succeeded because I know the bare minimum it takes for me to stay in business. And as long as I hit that bare minimum, I'm good. I have excellent word of mouth. I do not advertise Cause I don't feel like it. I do not, I don't have an email list. And this is something that I know is going to drive some of my, some of my friends are super into the, to the email, social media thing. That's going to drive them nuts. Cause I don't know what I should be doing. I just don't do it. I don't feel like it. That is not where my priorities are. My social media is 90% guinea pigs. Like I don't do anything right. I don't do anything the way you're supposed to do it. An excellent rapport with my clients. I'm very involved in my community. People know who I am around here because they've seen me. I give everybody's dogs cookies because I like dogs more than people most of the time. And so people know who I am and they say, hey, there's this gym that has no obvious signage over here. You should go check it out. So that has worked for me. I can't say that's going to work for everybody, but to me, if you give great service, people will come, you know? But I also never needed to be that that multimillion dollar trainer. Like I, I, this studio is all mine. I do not want to work with other trainers. I, I don't want the headache to me, like the fewer humans you have in a, in, a, in a space, the fewer headaches you have. And so I have had to do this in a way that I don't get money from support staff. Like I don't get rent money from other people. I have to be able to do this on my own. For a lot of people that would not be a possibility. So they, would, they want a bigger facility or they want a more expensive facility than what I have. They're going to need to rent out to other people in order to make that work.
1: That's so awesome. It's, it's wild because all of the, the business hacks of lead generation and marketing and all that, it's just a fast track to put you out of business when there's not heart and soul behind the product. It's just mm-hmm. a, a quicker way to add fuel to the fire of bad word of mouth. And you, you've taken the opposite approach, which was just providing high quality. Has it always been that way when when you first got into it, was it just about providing for the client or did you look at it as a business opportunity?
0: You know, I started in a big, a big box gym. I hated it. The management was just awful. And when I left, all my clients were like, we're going with you. Like 90% of my clients left with me. And so I actually had a base when I started, which was nice. And from that base just came the word of mouth. You know, it's so funny because yesterday I had these people have been trying to interview me, interviewed me for a while and they, so yesterday we had the interview and they were like, okay, so do you like, how many people are on your, your email list? And I was like, I don't don't have an email list. And they cut the interview short. (laughs) They were like, oh, they were like, that you really like how real you are. But we need someone with an email list, and then they like ended the of the interview. It was pretty funny.
2: Was it like an email list, like podcast, or why did they cut it off? It was
0: a, I think it was a podcast where they were relying on people with a large marketing base where they could cross promote. Oh. That's what it was. Yeah, yeah that's really weird. <laughs> yeah, I, I've never experienced that before, but I thought it was because I've never really pondered my lack of email list Uh before and now I'm like that's hilarious I must be like one of the only trainers who does not have an email list
2: (laughs) yeah yeah definitely I would say like you know I spent a lot of time in like the creator space because of my podcast and what they what the general saying is for creators is have an email list because if all of the platforms go away you know you're keeping your email list Mm -hmm. and for me I know that if I spent time on my email list I'm going to lose time and quality of the product of my podcast. Yeah. So for me, I'm in a similar program where I'm like, you know what? It's okay because I'm confident in the product, just like you're saying, where I think of it in similar ways. And that's what I tell people is like, Tesla doesn't do any marketing. You're in California. I know you see the Teslas. Everyone's mm-hmm. got one now. And Rolls Royce, they know they're the best. They're not doing any marketing. So you create the quality product. People will follow. And it, sometimes people look at it a little differently because gyms are kind of in the service you know, industry and it's still the same as a product. You make a good thing and people will come.
0: Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, like if all social media went away, people would miss pictures of guinea pigs. So like, it's not like that would really affect <laughs> me all that much. Like they would occasionally not get to see me bend a bar. Oh, well, they can come over here and watch me bend a bar, you know?
2: <laughs> What's the vibe like in LA to the carnivore diet? Is it something where People are not open to it at all. Is it something they're open to it kind of? And the reason why I ask is I'm a big believer in the diet, just like the way you think about it, which is don't lean completely on either side, but find ways to find the best diet. Right. And if it's vegan, fill it up with supplements. If it's carnivore, maybe fill it up with supplements again, no idea. But I'm curious, what was the vibe like in LA to a carnivore diet in your gym, maybe outside of your gym? is veganism something that is super popular there just tell me a little bit about that
0: I mean you know I I'm am I'm a very small microcosm as far mm-hmm. as the gym is concerned but I have my feet in many places because I'm also a, I'm a touring musician and so I also have my feet well entrenched in the in the metal community they are not the vegans and <laughs> I also see you know I see what's happening around me and look California is is pra- practically its own country it's huge it's yeah. got a very, very diverse number of people. If you get out of San Francisco and L.A., there's a whole nother side of people that look like Middle America. It's very, very different mindset. And so, look, you know, the, the carnivore diet is very appealing to a certain subset of people. The science behind it is faulty. I'm am a I'm a science girl, right? And I'm not going to go out there and tell you that the vegan diet is the best diet. Period. I'm not. I'm not vegan because it's the best diet. I'm vegan because I don't want to kill anything. The carnivore diet basically goes against all of the research that we have that proves over and over and over again that you're supposed to eat plants, like at least some plants, like plants are not bad for you. So the science is faulty, but you know what? When you go and do an extreme like that, people like that. People like the extreme. And the way I see the carnivore diet is that it is this very like, oh, you're going to be vegan. That's like you're a pussy. Like I'm going to go the manly way. This is the manliest thing you can do. I'm just going to eat like kidneys and intestines and right. And so like, I feel like it's almost like, like a big fuck you to the, to the plant eaters. That's what I, that's what it looks like to me. It's like, ha, you're going to do that. Look at me. I got hair on my chest and I'm manly and la la la. And you're going to grow an extra vagina because you're not, you know, that's what, that's what I think it's, you know, that's the, the energy around it. And it's, you know, it's so funny because there's a guy I know. Who's super, super, super in the carnivore diet. Like he's he just loves it. And the other day he posted a video of himself sitting in his car on a hot, hot day. He's just sitting in his car with the doors closed because someone in the carnivore community, I wanna say it was maybe Saladino, but it could have been somebody else. But somebody in the carnivore community is like, this is a redneck sauna. Like sit in your hot. Sit in your hot car with the windows (laughs) 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 closed. And to me, I'm like, oh my God, this is okay. Like, I wouldn't do that to my dog. Like, I wouldn't put my dog in a hot car. I'd break the windows. But you know, more power to you. If it makes you happy, I'm not gonna stomp on anybody's toes and say you can't do that, you shouldn't do that. If it makes him happy and he feels good doing it, more power to you. Diet is is very polarizing. And I know what the science says, but I'm never gonna be like, Well, you can't do that because the science says, no, look, if you feel good and you're happy and it's sustainable for you, have at it. You know, if you want to sit in a hot car and eat an intestine, more power to you.
1: It's funny how strong psychosomatic effects can be that your belief in something to that level of extreme could actually elicit positive feel-good results just because you identify with it.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. We have a very interesting culture of, especially like over the last, I would say 10 years, there's been this growing culture of hate is maybe the the right word. It's like, I'm going to do something because it's the opposite of what that guy does. And it makes that guy pissed off. So I'm going to do the thing that pisses that guy off. And I feel like there are so many things that are capitalizing on that mentality. You know what I'm saying? and i feel like the carnivore diet is 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 kind of it falls in that category of i'm going to do this because it flies in the face of everything that says that i shouldn't do this
1: i think a combination of social media being so polarizing you get attention mm-hmm. when you're an extreme like the most extreme yeah. opinion gets the most attention oh and
0: it makes money it, man it makes money
1: and the human desire for certainty and control to say okay things are black and white this is all wrong or this is all right Perfect. I can. I don't. I don't have to think. I don't have to grow. I can just make up my mind, and now I have this warm, cozy blanket of certainty with this polar opinion. Because if some is good, more is better, and it it can get very dangerous.
0: Oh yeah, totally. And look, you know, when you get your little cult following and you start selling your supplements and your books and all this stuff based on, you know, look at the the Liver King, made millions of dollars off of, you know, essentially what I think is the carnivore diet, plus he wears a loincloth and, you know, does pretend hunting or whatever it is he's doing. Look, you have a base that you appeal to and you found a way to get rich off of it and more power to you. To me it's kind of like as a science person, I always kind of look at that stuff a little side-eyed, but then the thing about health and fitness overall there's a human element to it and not everybody's body responds the way that science says it should respond and so there has to be also that anecdotal response there has to be that well it says that i can't do that but i am doing well on this it's a very individual thing
1: i love that and you know with all the experience that you have in being a, a person of science I think one of the most dangerous things about being that polarizing is once your identity is built on a stance, you kind of close yourself off to new information. And Uh the thing that I struggle with is looking back at who I was as a coach six years ago and how certain I was about things, and how painful it is to look back and say, "Wow, I had it wrong. I was doing the best I could. I was in the best interest of my clients, but..." I had more learning and growth to do. And now any conversation I have with a potential client, it's like, hey, what I'm promising you is that to work together, I will continue to evolve as I continue to learn and grow. So I'm going to provide to you an ever-changing service. I'm curious, in your history in the industry, what are some areas that you were almost forced to take on new information and, and change your opinion about? Did you ever have any of those monumental, like, I did believe this so certainly, and then- as I grew, I realized this was, this was more accurate of an approach. Do you have any? I'll
0: have. You know, like, for instance, from a nutrition standpoint, at one point, I was like, super like, oh, everything has to be organic and non-GMO and la-di-la-di-la. And now I know that most of that stuff is bullshit. Also, there was a point many, many, many years ago where I believed that any press should not go beyond 90 degrees angle. And any squat should not go beyond 90 degrees angle because then your shoulders and your knees fall off if that happens. I was very anti-bench press for a while, which I don't remember what the logic was there, but I was really super anti-bench press. I think it was because it wasn't functional enough because your body was supported or something like that. I had a lot of, of very faulty thoughts about things. But yeah, look, the mark of a good teacher, the mark of a good coach, the mark of a good scientist, the mark of a smart person to me is someone who is willing to change your position when faced with facts and evidence. The problem is, is the mark of a millionaire is that you stick to your guns, no matter what anybody says, because if you change your mind about things, people go like, wait a minute, you said that I have to sit in a hot car and eat kidneys. And now I can't do that. Like, so people will call you on it. And get mad because you no longer agree with that stance. So it's almost like this stick to your gut, lose your your millions kind of thing.
1: For sure, I'm going to change direction a little bit before I forget because you said something earlier that, again, I'm selfishly, I think if I answer the questions I'm curious about, it'll probably be satisfactory for the viewers as well. You talked about you know like the carnivore thing being like a manly thing. Yeah, and I notice in my coaching it probably has just as much to do with me as it does my clients, but I notice that I need to approach coaching females and coaching males quite differently. I'm curious in, in your experience, obviously every every individual is super unique on an individual basis, but if you had to give it one, like as a majority, do you see a difference in, in how to motivate and communicate with a female versus a male when it comes to changing behaviors, when it comes to, to moving forward with their fitness?
0: You know, I feel like men are less likely to own up to certain things that they see as a girl issue. For instance, eating disorders, body dysmorphia. Those are things that happen in men way more than is reported. They exist in men and I see it. I see it a lot. So that's something I think that this whole stigma of, well, that's a girl problem. So I can't have that problem because it's a girl problem that kind of thing. I feel like men are much more likely to try to overdo it in the gym and women are much more likely to underdo it in the gym. That's another thing that I kind of noticed where the women, I have to be like, no, you can pick that up. I promise you, you can pick that up. And they don't see, they don't, they don't think they don't have the confidence in their bodies. Men, sometimes they're a little overconfident and they're like, oh, I'm going to pick that up. If one of my big deadlifters was just here and I had that bar all loaded up, inevitably one of my male clients, if he's next, he'll come over and be able to try and pick it up almost every time. Women, very rarely, very, very rarely once in a while, but very rarely, at least with the clientele I get, I feel like, you know, it depends on the clientele you're working with. Cause I'm not working with super high level athletes or anything like that. And so I feel like depending on the population that you specialize in, you may see something different than what I see.
1: That's really cool. A big thing that I notice, I coach virtually now through Zoom and and I use a lot of motivational interviewing where I think like questions are the answers and I try Mm -hmm. to challenge my clients to come up with their own solutions. And what I find is I can leverage the ego of a man a little bit smoother and challenge them to come up with their own solution and then take action on it. And oftentimes with females, I run into them wanting to be told more what to do, just like just Mm -hmm. tell me. And that, that doesn't flow well for my style of coaching. And and for that Mm -hmm. reason, I focus on working with men mostly. Do you take a, a motivational interviewing approach to your coaching or do you more so say like, okay, here's a plan, let's action it.
0: You know, my motivational interviewing comes more with my nutrition clients than with my training clients. But that said, the whole session is me kind of assessing what's happening there and communicating with them and seeing how things feel and kind of judging our next move based on that. So, you know, I, and I, I don't know that it's motivational interviewing per se, you know, but it's feedback. It's constant feedback. And it's also observation because if you see like somebody's struggling with a particular movement, I have a, a little boy who comes here with his parents and... A little boy, he's probably 12, but he does not know how to keep his back straight. He doesn't know how to do it. Like to him, like bending at the waist is the same as bending at the hips, no matter what. And so trying to train his body over and over and over into this is how you move from this joint. This is how you move from that joint. And it's just based on what I'm watching him do. And, you know, I try different methods to try to make it stick. And then there's always one that's like, oh, that's the one that makes sense to him. You know, Because everybody learns in a different way, some tactile, observational, all that stuff. And so you have to kind of cater to the way that people learn.
1: It makes a lot of sense. I can just tell how passionate you are about your clients and, and taking good care of them and helping them get results and making sure their time with you is, is, is valuable. I'm curious, and it could be a multifaceted question, like how do you turn that off? Who is Melody outside of coach, outside of the gym? How do you separate yourself from the pressure of serving your clients and just be at peace with yourself and, and, and kind of separate, compartmentalize that side of you.
0: I have become very good at understanding boundaries. You have to, you have to draw boundaries. And one of the biggest, like kind of advice I can give to trainers is don't make this your whole life, no matter how much you love your work or your training or whatever, get a hobby. <laughs> go do something else. I'm very fortunate to have one foot in the music world because that's my other heart. This is one half of my heart and that's the other one. And then there's a third half of my heart. My heart has three halves. The third half of my heart is working with animals. And I I love to volunteer. I love to work with animals. I'm actually hopefully going tonight to volunteer at, a, at an animal sanctuary that I volunteer with. And then next weekend we we go and volunteer on Skid Row with the homeless and their pets. And so I I make sure that I that I leave time for that. And the other thing is, is I make sure that, so my Mondays are a 16 hour day easily between what I do at the gym and my online clients, easily 16 hour day. I'm up at four in the morning. I'm working till 10, almost every time. But I do that because I can breathe the rest of the week. Like I get all of that out of the way. Like all of, all of my online clients check in on Mondays. So I'm responding to them all day. And then there's some people who do it early on Sunday and some stragglers on Tuesday. But Monday is like a, like just getting hammered. But then by the time Wednesday rolls around, I'm like, oh, I can go do things. I can go enjoy some things. Also, I, I have prepaid <laughs> for a spa appointment. Because if I don't do it in advance, it's not going to get done. And I tend to not really pay a lot of attention to like, oh, this is my beauty thing. But I bought a Groupon and I was like, you know what, I'm just going to do this thing that's relaxing. So I do stuff like that for myself. Just do do things that, are, that just feel good, just for the sake of doing things that feel good.
2: Definitely. I love that. I have a lot of parallels there with making sure that fitness doesn't become a whole identity, especially yeah. for myself, because... For me, I always thought, you know, I'm the athlete. I'm, I love training hard. I love doing this stuff. And then when I tore my ACL, it was like, well, I can't train for a long time. So we physical therapy for, for a while. You know, who am I now? You know, I can't go out and train do this stuff. And Mm -hmm. even it feels like when I get sick and I have these identity crisis, like, oh, I can't work out. It's been forever. I really want to get back out there. And it's like, who am I? And you know, it's this crazy thing. I really love that parallel. And I'm curious. In this current time, what's really exciting you in the science world? What's something that's got you really excited?
0: To be honest, I'm really excited about all the advances that have been made in, in vegan food, like making meat out of uh, cells in the lab. I think that's amazing. A lot of people are like, oh, that's scary. Look, it's not scary. To me, that is going to, first of all, save a lot of animal lives, ideally. But also, it's so much better for the environment. And it's probably a lot cleaner as far as like not soaking things up from the environment. You know what I'm saying? Like if there's like a lot of pollutants in the air and the water and things like that. If you're growing it in the lab, you're not, you're not passing that on. You're not giving it antibiotics and you're not giving it hormones, you know, things like that. So I feel like that's a, that's a very exciting technology for me. I'm still like, it's, it doesn't make logical sense but I'm still on the fence about whether or not I personally would want to have it because it's just been so long since I've had meat meat that I just kind of don't want it. But ethically, I think it's, it's, it's amazing. So I'm, I'm excited about that. And it really doesn't make sense either because I'm eating things that, that mimic meat and that doesn't bother me. So it's just, I think it's just kind of getting over that in my head.
2: Definitely. And one thing that I ask a lot of my gym owner guests about, but I'm really curious, especially for you, because pretty much all of your clients are word of mouth. Yeah. How do you foster a good gym community at your gym? It's something that we spend a lot of time at in the CrossFit space asking. And you know, we feel that CrossFit gyms have like a really nice community. And that's what gets people in the door. Regardless of how great that product is, that community will help. And it will help bring people in the door. You've been running for a long time. Pretty much everybody in your gym's is word of mouth. How do you Mm -hmm. foster a community in your gym?
0: Let me tell you this. CrossFit does that better than anybody I know. That is the thing that CrossFit does. To me, that's like, that's behind the success of CrossFit. You could go to CrossFit and your arm could fall off and you will not be able to wait to sew your arm back on so you could get back to CrossFit. That is what I've seen from CrossFit. It is like a rabid. And I think that's amazing. That's, that's incredible. For me I don't it's not all group classes here so it's it's a little bit different but my small group classes they all have each other's phone numbers they all like are on each other's social media they've all become really good friends which is really cool to see and then you know I have small events here like I did a truck pull with my clients which was really fun because none of them thought they could pull a truck And they all like, one of them has, has the video on her phone that she shows to her friends all the time. She's like, look what I did, which is really fun. And so I'm having my 10 year anniversary party here in September, and we're going to have like little competitions and, you know, I'm going to teach the kids how to bend nails and and things like that. And it's just going to be really fun. So I do little events like that as well. I sometimes teach free classes here. Like I'll do a nutrition class so the community can come in. And talk about, you know, nutrition and things like that. I did a CPR class in here one time. I didn't teach it, but I had somebody come out and and do a CPR class here and those little things. And I also just kind of feel like being part of your overall community is important. I'm pretty, pretty active in the Pasadena and Altadena, like circles. Like people know who I am. Every Thanksgiving, I put an invite out to the entire neighborhood. Like I'm like, if you don't have a place to go, come to my house. So I do things like that. So it helps.
2: Awesome. Yeah, that's really awesome. I didn't realize that about the Pasadena community for the small time I was there. Very tight knit. Everyone's very friendly. And I could definitely see how exciting that would be for your guests. Like you see these people, you get to work out with them. And then you have these events with them. And mm-hmm. you get to talk to them when you're not, you know, panting and like gasping for breath. And you talk to them, mingle with them, and these are the people you see around town. It's really awesome that way. And yeah, one thing I'm and curious also, about.
0: I'm the, I'm the I'm the cookie person for the dogs in the neighborhood too. Yeah. <laughs> so like there's always people like coming in with their dogs and they get cookies and they, you know, it's it's just kind of fun. Like my clients yeah. have to get the the dog break too.
2: Yeah, that's awesome. I did notice um Passing is a pretty dog friendly town too. I didn't notice yeah. that. I did not have my dog there while I was there, but I he would have loved it there. Yeah, It's very cool. Yeah, and so Brad, obviously, you're fitness guy yourself, long time gym owner. What is the rest of the family like? Do you see any commonalities in fitness among the family? I'm curious to hear about that.
0: So my sisters, my sister runs. She likes to run, and her sons are all runners. And her middle son is an elite runner. Like in his college, he's like one of the top runners in his school which is really really oh. cool. And then my my other brother he 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 works out. He's not like competitive at it or anything, but he he likes to work out. My niece went to a military college and she went to the Citadel and she she took the the working out with her when she left. So she she likes to train. She's she's gotten real strong. She became a cop. She was a cop and she's not now, but she I think she's planning on becoming a trainer, is my understanding. So we all kind of took something of of fitness and took it with us, you know. So it's pretty cool because we weren't raised like that.
1: That is so awesome that you get to share that, the family. Not being raised like that is the story of my life. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of the black sheep of a family of five kids, and I'm I'm really the only one who took up fitness as a passion. But with that, I recognize a lot of the hurdles, just the psychology of the household I grew up in, the things that I battle to to stay diligent with my health and fitness for the long term. And it's become kind of an obsession of mine to, to study. I'm not sure how accurate the, the statistic is that 95% of people who lose weight gain it back.
0: Yeah, it's pretty but- accurate.
1: But I'm I'm curious, in your opinion, what separates that 5%? What is it that the 5% who succeeds to keep it off and, and keep this change for the long term, what are they doing special?
0: To me, it's all about sustainable practices and not just addressing it from, a, from the point of view as, well, I'm going to do this till I lose the weight and then I'm going to do something else. I think most people do the quick fix. They're like, well, what is the fastest way for me to get from here to there? I'm going to do that until I can't do it anymore, and then I'm going to feel really deprived, and I'm going to bounce, right? The clients that I work with, we work with their mentality and their behaviors around food, and we do it, ideally, very small steps at a time, because if I want to get from here to there, and I take a tiny step, I'm still going to get there, right? This is going to take me longer, but I'm going to get there. And the key to habit change is being able to practice that habit over and over and over again until it just becomes natural. And so the ability to to break it down and be patient with it and do things sustainably and just do things kind of a little bit at a time, just little bites, and then being able to kind of stack on top of those habits as you go. To me, that's the key to sustainable fat loss. And of course, there's always gonna be crises and and craziness and life just lifes at you. And so it it's really a matter of understanding how to roll with life, whatever's being thrown at you at the time, in a way that doesn't completely take your needs out of the equation. So if you only have one way to do things, you're probably not gonna succeed because when you can't do things that way, what are you gonna do? So having a big old toolbox and where you can say, okay, last time this kind of thing came up, this is what happened. Here's what I want to change about that this time. So here's what I can do instead this time. This is realistic. This is manageable. I can do this this time and not. I would rather people stay afloat than drown. And so just having that bare minimum that you can do when life is just insane is better than doing what you would have done otherwise
1: that makes me so happy because I think we ultimately fall to the level of our worst days as opposed to Mm -hmm. rise to the level of our best days. Mm -hmm. And I see so many coaches in the fitness industry, maybe they're insecure, maybe it's something else. Maybe they're just following somebody else's lead, but I see a lot of coaches making it about themselves by having their clients do extreme things to get mm-hmm. results that they can then validate themselves with. And it's not yep. actually in the best interest of the client long-term. Yep. And since I love hearing what you have to say, I'm so curious. I know you mentioned you do some online coaching. Obviously, in the area of Pasadena, your word of mouth is what makes brick and mortar business run. But do you do online coaching for anyone, anywhere? What's the structure like? How can they find you? And, and how, do you, how do you structure the online coaching to deliver value virtually?
0: I actually do it through a company called Macros Inc. Macros Inc. is run by Brad Dieter and Jay Weuth. And they asked me to be a part of their company when they really first started, when there were four other coaches there. Now there's over 100 coaches with them. And the structure is all them. It's all they ha- They do the software. They do the marketing. They do everything. And I just do what I do well. So I'm a lead coach with them. I have several coaches underneath me that I mentor. And then I also work with. I have about 60 clients with them right now. I never take on more clients than I can give very good attention to. So I have a limit of what I can handle considering what else I have going on in my life and I will adjust accordingly based on what I we you know what's going on. But right now that's a very reasonable number for me and I'm able to stay on top of of what people need. And yeah, it's I I love it because it adds you know to me it adds another dimension to what I do and I don't have to worry about the marketing part. I I do what I do. And then there's people who do that. <laughs> so that works very well for me.
2: Awesome, Melody. Well, before we get out of here, I wanted to make sure we plug any projects you got going on, where people could find your gym and the titles of your books.
0: Yeah. So my gym is called Flawless Fitness. My gym's website is Melody at, oh, excuse me. Haha, that's my my email, Melody at FlawlessFitness.com. <laughs> but my gym is uh, FlawlessFitness.com. And I have three books right now. One of them is Pleasure Not Meeting You, M-E-A-T. That was my first book. It is only available on Amazon. When I when I wrote that book, I didn't think anybody wanted it. And so I was like, well, I'm just gonna self-publish it and get it out there. So that's why it's only on Amazon. But from that book, Human Kinetics was like, hmm, what else you got? So from that book came Diet Lies and Weight Loss Truths, which Susan Kleiner wrote some excerpts in that as well. If you're familiar with her, she's a phenomenal sports nutritionist. And I actually have this one with me today. So I have this one, which I wrote with Lee Boyce and it's called Strength Training for All Body Types. And that one is on lever lengths and how they affect your strength and training and ways that you can kind of work with what your body's got to optimize your, your lifting ability. So it's a, that's a pretty cool book. That book, there's, there's really nothing else like it out there. So it was very exciting to write that because that's kind of a, something that people don't address in the textbooks. So
2: Perfect. That's awesome. And for anybody listening, if you're in the Pasadena area, you got to swing by and go say what's up to Melody. I know we have a lot of CrossFit people. So next time of the CrossFit Games is in uh, Pasadena. And they're looking to escape the crowds of the uh, regular CrossFit jams, which are going to be super jam packed. Gotta go check out Melody. Yeah, well, Melody, I appreciate it. Of course, you definitely will. And we appreciate you hopping on today. And we appreciate you, everything. And I know we finally got it done. We've been going back and forth, pushing a little bit, but I'm really happy we got this in. Uh, Appreciate you hopping on, and I appreciate everybody for listening.
0: Thank you so much.